Amen. Well, good to have us uh, all gathered together again, brother, and on the Lord's day. Uh, so, such a glorious time, amen, as the Lord has set days aside for us as Bible believers, those who have been called, uh, called out, the uh, ecclesia and the gathered together, amen. And uh, this particular Lord's day is uh, a glorious time, amen. We get, and get to open our Bibles together, we get to pray together, we get to shortly gather around the Lord's table together, and I'm certainly looking forward to... Uh, to doing that with all of us this morning as we, again, proclaim and remember his death till he come. And, brethren, we are so blessed. Well, as we, uh, Brother Dean, he read quite a chunk of scripture there. And, and uh, sometimes we have a hard time, brethren, just getting through a couple of verses as you exegete the scriptures uh, verse by verse. But this morning, as we look morning, we will see that certain portions of it are, if you will, are, are, if you will, gathered together and they basically preach a theme out of the verses that are gathered together. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at the, obviously, the, the biblical truths that are coming out of these verses together. Now, uh, when you preach verse by verse through through the scriptures, you, again, by way of remembrance, you want to kind of draw us all in, amen, where we left off last time we were together. And so when we were last time together, you remember that a biblical fear of God had fallen on the city of Ephesus, and the Lord Jesus Christ's name was being magnified. And again, that's so important as we see that. His name was being exalted, his name was being lifted on high, and therefore bringing forth a biblical repentance. And again, brethren, as we have often said, you must remember and understand that, again, one cannot repent of all their sins to be saved. That's not possible because, again, you can't remember every sin you've committed. Although the Bible teaches us that we can repent in our minds and in our hearts concerning who Jesus Christ is. And then you believe on him and as you grow as he sanctifies you, amen, those sins that you're struggling with and dealing with, he drosses them away and takes them off. So this is what's happened. Many there in Ephesus are being, his name's being magnified. They are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they proved it. Remember, they brought their books of curious arts. And uh, I was talking with uh, a couple of the brothers this morning. I still think we should have an official book-burning party like they did, anything that's blasphemous, unholy concerning who Christ is. That's how they're training and teaching the young people and uh, even some of these liberal churches and pastors, their books should be burned. Here in particular, they were into sorcery, black magic. They were into witchcraft and all of these things. And they believed on his name and again brought their books. This, of course, brethren, did not go unnoticed by the unholy spirits, the evil demons as we know, as I worded it in my own kind of way, these foul and unclean spirits who were roaming the back alleys and the streets of Ephesus. This stuff does not go unnoticed. When the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted high, amen, there's always Satan and his evil minions there who are busy working. They clearly understood, and again, brethren, this is what's so nice, they clearly understood What's taking place here? This, again, is a pattern that we've seen in the book of Acts, that when Christ is preached biblically, God's elect will be drawn out by that preaching, and they will be saved. And this is nothing new. This is something they've seen before with their unholy eyes. They know the power of Christ. They know the power of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. In fact, we see this, don't we? The word of God, and again, if you go on our website and you go into uh, certain segments of our website there, you'll notice that we say in there that the Word of God is always present when a conversion takes place. The Word of God is always preached. That's the power, amen? And we notice here in the book of Acts, it's the same thing. The Word of God is central to their preaching. And again, just by way of reminder, look at verse number 20 of Acts chapter 19. Again, the Word of God as it is being uh, mightily growing and prevailing. Look at verse number 20 there. Look what the Bible says. So mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. So again, we see the Word of God being held high. We see the preaching that's taking place. And it's growing mightily and prevailing. And believe you me, the unholy uh, demons know this, brethren. They understand completely and totally. In fact, look back at Acts chapter 6. Look at just a couple of them here. Again, we see the word of God, which is central to their preaching, which should be central to our preaching. Amen. It should always be. Acts chapter 6. Look there, if you would, 
Just as a couple of reminding examples, uh, we preached through here quite some time ago, but again, just by way of remembrance for you, look at verse number 7. Look what the Bible says. And the word of God increased. And what happened? When the word of God increases, the number of disciples what? Look what it says there in verse 7. The number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. So again, we see the word of God central to the preaching. And God then is taking the Holy Spirit of God, is applying the word of God to the heart that's as stony as can be, hard as a rock, the mind that's at enmity with him. And he's turning that heart into flesh. He's turning that mind that was in empty with him to, to then be able to believe on him. So the word of God there again. Look at Acts chapter 12 again. Just, just a couple of them here. The centrality of the word of God uh, as it should always be. You shouldn't have a carnival. The pastor shouldn't be up giving a carnival show to the, to the to, as Spurgeon once said, right? It won't be long instead of the pastors teaching the sheep, right? It'll be the clowns entertaining the goats. And we must be very careful, brethren, that that does not happen. We must be extremely careful Look at Acts chapter 12. Look at verse number 24 again, just seeing. Look what it says. But the word of the God grew, the word of God grew and multiplied. So again, we see the word of God growing. We see it multiplying. We see then those lost sheep, right? We say it all the time, amen? A goat is always a goat. Sheep are sheep, but they're lost sheep till Christ finds them, amen? And so this is what you're seeing. These lost sheep then are hearing the word of God, and the spirit of God is regenerating them and drawing them Unto himself. As I said, brethren, there is no doubt that whenever or wherever the Word of God does what the book of Acts here has just divinely explained to us, when it grows, when it multiplies, when it increases, when it prevails, Satan and his unholy band of unclean minions who hate the Word of God, brethren, more than we can even begin to imagine. Without fail, they aggressively set themselves against it and will, in every conceivable, ungodly way, try to pervert it. Now, we look here back at Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse number 23. Look there, if you would, with me as we read that particular verse together this morning. Acts chapter 19, look at verse number 23. Uh, the Bible says there, oh, i got to get to Acts chapter 19, verse 23. The Bible says there, And the same time there arose no small stir about the way. Well, I've laid the foundation already. We've seen it over and over again that this is what happens. When the word of God prevails, <laughs> the demons can't help themselves. The evil demons can't help themselves. Now, it's interesting, brethren, when you consider this. In verse 23, Luke is telling us, by his inspired pen, that about at the same time that Paul had purposed in his heart to head for Rome, he was going to go up through Macedonia, through Achaia, and then he was going to ultimately end up in Jerusalem, and then he would ultimately end up in Rome. And so look at verse number uh, 21. He tells us that. And, and, And again, Luke reveals to us about the same time he's planning to do that, this stir takes place. Look at verse 21 there. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. The question becomes, why is Paul, as he is the spirit of God is leading him, why is he going up through Macedonia? Why is he going to Achaia? Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, again, we've seen over and over again Paul's heart as a pastor. You remember that he continually, he says to Timotheus, he says to, to, the, to the men that are preaching with him, hey, let's go back and let's see how they do. So he's always wanting to go back. He's preaching, he's an evangelist preaching, and then he wants to go back. Well, here we see again in the book of Acts, we see things happening. There's this big picture that we see, and then we see in other portions of Scripture, oh, that's what Paul was talking about. That's why he wanted to go to Macedonia. That's why he wanted to go back up to these cities. Turn with me, if you would. To Romans chapter 15. He tells us here, he explains this to us. Again, this big picture narrative, this inspired narrative, the, he then defines for us, if you will, a little more detail here in Romans chapter 15. This again is the heart of Paul, the heart of a pastor, the heart of one who would preach, and then he wants to go back and make sure that those who he had preached to are indeed doing well. And so you look here, Romans chapter 15, look at verse Number 25, look there what the Bible says. He writes, 
well, his, his uh, Tertius wrote this, but Paul was inspired by God to tell him, and Tertius wrote it, verse 25. But now I go on to Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. There it is again. This is why he's, he's going to head back to Jerusalem. He's going to minister to the saints. Look at verse 26. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. And so again, this was his purpose. This is why he's going to go and do what he's doing. He's set in his spirit. The Bible says that he's purposed in his spirit. Now, this is not Rick Warren purpose, okay? The purpose-driven life, the purpose-driven this and that. It's interesting, isn't it, when, when you, uh, sometimes you read things just for study purposes. And one of the most interesting things about Warren's book, you know, The Purpose-Driven Life, is that the first thing he says is, is, is this book is not about you, and then the rest of the book is all about you. It's, it's a stunning thing to believe, to behold. Paul's concern here, brethren, is these poor saints, and he's taken the contribution, the Macedonian church, he's taken this up through there to help bring relief to the saints at Jerusalem. Verse 26, For it hath pleased them in Macedonia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints who are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles had been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal Thing. So again, we see here Paul's concern as, as the book of Acts is unfolding, this big inspired narrative, we're seeing this thing working its way out as Paul writes, or as Tertius writes, concerning Paul. Now Luke uses an interesting word here, stir. It's only used one other time, actually, in the scriptures. We, we see in Second Peter, we see the word stir, but it's not the same Greek word. This word's only used twice, actually, in the New Testament. It means to incite to animate, to instigate by inflaming passions. It's really quite an amazing thing that, uh, that's what's happening here. Thereby causing, listen, a confused, disorderly, it's amazing, isn't it? A confused, and that's important, this word specifically defines what's taking place, a confused, disorderly tumult and uproar. This is literally what it means. Now, brethren, listen to the language here in our text. Look at what, what Luke writes under the inspiration of God, keeping in mind the definition of stir, to incite, to, if you will, bring out these passions, to create a disorderly kind of gathering. Look there at verse 29, if you would. Acts 19, verse 29. And the whole city was filled with what? Confusion. Having what? No, uh, having caught Gaius... And, and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companion in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. Look at verse 32. Again, the idea here is a stirring, a causing of confusion, a causing of tumult, a causing of uproar. This is exactly what Luke defines. Look at verse 32. Look there, if you would. Some, that, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And the more part knew not where they were or why they're there. Now, brother, it is so interesting. I was thinking just of our own nation and the unholy things that have gone on in the past few years. You think of all of the mobs, all of the unholy mobs, the George Soros mobs that are out there. I mean, it was interesting. People would interview those people and they'd ask them, why are you here? I don't know why I'm here. This is the same situation. They have no idea why they're there. All they know is they're going to scream and screech, Diana, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. This is George Soros kind of modern day stuff. Confusion. Men have no idea why they're there. It's a stunning thing to behold. Look there at verse 40. We are in for we are in danger and called to be in question for this day's what? Uproar. There it is again. There's the word. That's exactly what that word stir means. This is all taking place. It's an amazing thing. Now, brethren, we know here that the unseen cause of this no small stir, again, as we have seen repeatedly, is definitely spawned and belched right from the pit of hell itself. There is no question about that. Demons, these human agents, it's stunningly amazing. If you look in Scripture, brethren, you know, we think of the number of times that Satan actually spoke in the first person. Anybody know in Scripture how many times Satan actually spoke in the first person? It is stunning. 
to go and study that out. Four times where he actually is recorded in Holy Writ, where he spoke in first person. You know how he spoke the rest of the time? Was through human agents. It's a stunning thing. And we see that here. This is what they're doing. He is simply stirring these confused, lost people into this amazing uproar. He's using these human agents, which he always does, brethren. Again, when you go preaching, we went, brother, and I, I don't want to sidetrack, but I'm just going to remind us. When we were preaching in the, at the Capitol this summer, brethren, those of us who were there preaching, we saw it, right? When all the death, those who were pro-death and wanting to kill their children were there, we confronted that. And it was an amazing thing to see the screeching that went on. It's just stunning. Here's Satan using these human agents to, again, if you will, buffet the word of God, to buffet the preaching, to buffet those who are there praying and preaching for holiness. It's the same thing here. Nothing's changed, brother. This is the interesting thing we say a lot. Men have not changed. Their hearts have not changed. They are as hard today as they've ever been. We were talking, Vicki and Gina this morning, we were talking about that. You know, here amongst God's judgment, his judgment of what? His judgment of Romans 1, where his hand is being lifted off of our nation. There's judgment coming. And he's, it's, it's all over the place. He's simply lifting his hand off and letting men be what they are. And yet, in the midst of this, we see some glorious victories. Roe v. Wade gets overturned, amen? And then you really see the depth of evil. Because now all these evil minions can do, they're trying everything they can to get around it. It's a stunning thing to behold, to watch the depravity of men and what they will do left to themselves. We were saying this morning how blessed you are this morning if you are saved, that your heart has been changed, that your mind that was in entity with God is now uh, able to understand and grasp these spiritual things because all of us, brethren, all of us have it in us when we are lost. You have no idea how evil you can be. And we're seeing it. We're standing here this morning. We saw it this summer. We see it over and over again how evil men can be apart from God, uh, if you will, intervening there. These human agents oppose the way. They oppose the gospel of Christ. This is what they're ultimately opposing. The way, the Bible says, this second time now, several times in Acts, the way is called, it's, it's speaking of the, the way of Christ, the gospel of Christ, which is spreading rapidly throughout the providence of Asia. Listen to these human agents. Look at verses 24, 25, and 26. Again, we've, we've read these. Two things I want to bring out in this portion, this section of Scripture. First of all, I want you to see the human agents that are being used. Second of all, I want you to see the human, if you will, the demonic purpose, the reason. It's not left to our thoughts, brother. It's right here, clear as day. Look at verse 24. Look at these human agents that are, that are used. For a certain man named Demetrius, that's human agent number one right there. There's no question. Look at what it says there. A, uh, Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana. What's his issue? What's the issue with the gospel? What's the issue with the preaching? Well, it tells us in verse 24. Look at here. He made no small gain. There was wealth, there was money. We were talking about that again this morning, weren't we? Guys, just sitting around having a great conversation about Bible things. Brethren, listen. The love of money is indeed the root of all evil. It absolutely is. You follow that thing along. The depraved heart wants, as, as a Paul Washer once said, when these churches are full of people, I want a gold watch, I want a Cadillac. Yes, you're getting what your flesh wants you to have versus what the Bible says we need, amen, the spiritual circumcision, the, the awakening from the dead. But it's an amazing thing here that these men are simply revealing their hearts, as we see here. No small gain. Money's tied directly to what they're doing, just like killing of our children, Amen. I always love that, and I don't want to keep going back here, but remember when Bill Clinton was in office? You know, it was, it was all about the, who are the children? It's, it's about the children. It's all about the children. Here we have these evil, baby-killing people. It's all about the children. 
It's, it's all about the family. It's just as anti and evil as you can get. It's a stunning thing. And you see this here. And I always say when we go over, used to go over the killing mill, it's closed now, I believe. Unless they're, well, by the cover of night, they might be. I believe it's closed now. But we used to go preach over there. And I would say to them, if you love these girls so much, why are you charging them? Why are you charging them to kill their babies? Because, brothers, they don't care one whit about them. They care about the what? The money. Follow the money. It brings much evil to light. We were talking this morning again. Sorry, Vicki, Jeaner. We were talking about this amazing child trading, this unbelievable evil that's lurking in our own state, right? High people taking these children and using them, prostituting them out and using them for these things. They don't care about them. You know what they care about? The money. Follow the money. It's an amazing thing. And this is no different here. We see this confusion being brought, this uproar being brought, the human agents. Look at verse number 25. Whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, so here it is. We've got Demetrius as a human agent. Now we've got the workers' guild, the silver, if you will, guild there that's being brought into this. They, again, are human agents that Satan is using here to oppose the gospel preaching that Paul is doing. Look what it says. Why was it a concern? The human agent was Demetrius. We've got great gain. Look there now. Look at these. He's bringing these other, these other silversmiths in, these of the same occupation, and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our what? Our wealth. There it is again. Much wealth. That's the center of their affection right there. It's amazing. In fact, the third thing that we see there, if you go along to verse, well, let's finish verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Again, so we've got wealth concerns. We've got idol worship concerns because if there's not enough people worshiping the idols, our wealth is going to deplete. This is what they are concerned about. This feigned, well, it's probably, I call it feigned. Concern about Diana here is a stunning thing. I don't think that's what they're worried about. They're worried about what we've said. These human agents being used by Satan, concerned about their wealth. It is a stunning thing. No small gain, verse 24. Verse 25, our wealth. Verses 26 and 27. Look there at 27. So that not only is our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that a temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed whom all of Asia and the world worshipeth. Brethren, that is one of the most sincere comments, I believe, that's been made. They don't care. What they care about is the wealth that's being spoken of. It is quite a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider that, as we know, Demetrius was indeed an idol maker who the Ephesian pagans believed. This, this is a stunning thing, and I have to be careful. I, I actually had to look up a couple words. Because when you understand what Diana looked like, a grotesque, nasty-looking thing. And I had, to, I had to look the word up because if you go look up what she looked like, the lower half of her body was completely filled with paps. Is that a word I can use? Paps is another word for something else. It's a stunning thing. Her whole, it was grotesque. And this is, this is who they were worshiping. Her whole lower half was full of paps. And they were worshiping her. A stunning thing. Believing, if you will, that she was the goddess of fertility. It's an amazing thing. They also believed that this multi-papped, grotesque idol <laughs> was created in heaven. And then was given down from the gods. I mean, we have some amazing mythology going on here. It's a stunning thing to behold. Nothing's new, brother. I was listening to James White this last week. 
And uh, he was actually on a radio show. Brother Dean, did you see that when they were talking about... He, he, he brings this man who claimed... Now, we know, brother, you can't be a Christian and then lose your salvation. That's not possible. First of all, that's the first error that the guy had. But second of all, he gets on there, and, uh, and James, is, he, he lets this guy go first, and he's talking about, I need proof. I need proof. I need proof of the text. I need proof of Mark. I need proof of Isaiah. I need proof of... So James then commences to give him proof after proof after proof after proof. The Dead Sea Scrolls, he says. They affirm that prophecy is true and real, that Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ was born. Amen? That Daniel wrote these things before they took place. That Cyrus, it was 300 years before Cyrus came to be that God used that pagan to do what he did. And it's proof after proof after proof. And James, the guy said, oh, no. And James finally said to him, what is it going to take? He said, I debated Bart Ehrman. And I asked Bart Ehrman, after giving him all of this proof concerning the text of Scripture, he asked him, Bart, what is it going to take, Bart? He says, well, I'm going to need three notarized copies of the original autographs to, to, to believe this stuff. Brethren, listen, that standard's not held anywhere else. But when you are darkened, when you are steeped and dead in your sins and trespasses, brethren, this is how you react to the holy things of God. This is what you have here. They are steeped in sin. They're steeped in the occult. They are enemies of God. And here we have them being deeply concerned about these things. It's amazing, brethren, when you consider this, the depth of this. Look at Acts 28. Let's just go ahead here just a little bit. The depth of this mythology, it's quite a stunning thing. Look at Acts 28. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says there, And after three months we departed in a ship to Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. <laughs> Pollux. Amazing. Who, who are Castor and Pollock? Well, they were the twin sons of Zeus in mythology, in Greek mythology. Roman mythology is different, but Greek mythology, these two were twin brothers of Zeus, or twin sons who were indeed, they believed, brother. And it's amazing. The protectors of the sea. But here's Paul getting on a ship that has these mytho mythological things on the front, and they have much evil design behind them. But this is the culture Paul was in. That's why back in Acts 19, look at verse 35. They believed that this grotesque image, this multi-papped image, fell down from the gods out of heaven. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. When the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of Ephesus, the Ephesians, is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which what? Fell down from Jupiter. There it is. I mean, Luke is just under the inspiration of God laying this all out for us. They actually believe that this grotesque thing fell down. It's stunning. Demetrius indeed made miniature silver shrines, models of the temple of Diana, which was extremely large. It was 80,000 square feet, brother, in the circumference of it. It's stunning. It's a stunning thing that they were worshiping Diana in. And he would make these miniature shrines, models of the temple that contain the grotesque image of her inside of it. So it, you can imagine a little miniature little thing with this grotesque thing inside of it. And amazingly, brother, it's amazingly. The shrines were bought by the pilgrims to Diana's temple. Of necessity. Of necessity. Just as today, brethren, listen to me. You think this stuff is not relevant? You don't think this has implications for today? Just as rosaries and just as, what, images of Mary and every other, well, saint you can think of, but particularly at the, at the temple of Lourdes, it is indeed the rosary and the image of Mary that must be bought by the pilgrims to this thing. It's, it's stunning how relevant it is and how unholy what they're doing really is. It really, really is as you see that. I like what one pastor said. In a skillful piece of oratory, Demetrius united the workmen's economic concerns with their superstitions. <laughs> and this is what's happened. This is exactly what he did. Quite an orator. Quite an orator calling these lost men in 
concerning what was taking place. Now look here. Look at Acts 19. Look at verses 28. Again, we're kind of doing this, if you will, in sections because there's themes in these sections. Look at 28, 29, 30, 31, and 32. We'll read them together again. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. So we see that there. Amen. Amen. Paul's not here, brother. They wouldn't let him go, first of all. And then verse 31, And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring that he would not adventure himself into the theater. So this is entering because this is setting up what God is going to do sovereignly. And again, brethren, we're going to look at this. It's a stunning thing. You know, as, as reformers, we get accused all the time, sovereignty of God under every rock. No, it's in every page. That's the problem. It's not a problem. It's a beautiful thing. It's not me looking for it. You read the scriptures and let it exegetically tell you what it's doing. And here we have the glorious work of God going on and on and on. Here in verses 28 through 32, Luke, by the way of his inspired pen, records for us the demonically frenzied crowd's confused response to Paul's preaching. This is, again, what's being unveiled here is they're screaming, you know, so they, they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, and when Paul had, uh, well, we read that text. He's not in there, amen? There he is. But look at verse 32. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And again, brethren, we see this. It's a stunning thing. So here we have this demonically frenzied crowd. They're screeching, great is Diana of Ephesians. Again, as I said, a George Soros kind of crowd that joins the melee, and they have no idea. Why they're there. It is a stunning thing. Some are saying one thing. Some are saying another thing. Amen. Who's the author of confusion, brethren? It isn't God. God is not the author of confusion. We know who this is. We know that through these human agents, this is what he's doing. Trying to confuse people concerning the gospel. This is what they're doing. It's amazing. They join this crowd. While rushing to the theater, some of the crowd grab a couple of men. Gaius and Aristarchus, both faithful men, brethren. Listen, this is an amazing thing. Both faithful men who were working with Paul who were spoken highly of in Scripture. Both of them. Both of these men are now being enveloped in with Paul's preaching. They were there working with him. I want you to see this. Again, just by way, again, of... Uh, you know, the book of Acts, this inspired narrative that's taking this, this bigger, if you will, this bigger view, this 30,000-foot view versus Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians where he's giving us great details concerning what's happening. So I want you to see what the Bible says first about Gaius. Turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Let's just see this together, brethren. Let's look together here, Romans. And again, this is just a couple of mentions. There are some other men with these names, but these are the particular men here with Paul. It was a fairly, at times, familiar name in that time. Look at Romans chapter 16. Look at here what Paul writes concerning this man, Gaius. Look at verse number 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, mine host... He was a host to the church. This is the kind of godly man that he was in Rome. This is the kind of man that he is. This is what scripture said. Gaius, my hope, mine host, and of the whole church saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you, and Cortus, a brother. So we see there again, he was a, if you will, a host to Paul at the church in Rome. Look at here. Look at this relationship. 1 Corinthians, just quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, over just one, one book there. And remember that Paul, of course, wrote this epistle under the inspiration of God. And look who he mentions, this relationship that he has. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse number 13. Look what the Bible says. Is Christ divided? Is Paul crucified for you? You were baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and who? Gaius. There it is. Paul's got this close relationship with this man. Here that he's talking about in the book of Acts. He's baptized him. 
Amen? And so again, we see this disciple of Christ who's alongside Paul, working with him. They're the ones that are being brought into the theater. <laughs> They're the ones that are being held accountable for the preaching that's taking place. And of course, Aristarchus, look what he here, look how Paul defines him in Colossians. Just quickly, Colossians chapter 4. Just flip over there. Again, this is why it's so interesting and so glorious to have the Word of God, because it helps us to see, it helps us to, to that roadmap, that, that holy narrative that we're seeing as God is working through the churches and these men and these people who are there working with him. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse number 9. Look there if you would. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. There we go. Aristarchus, my fellow what? Prisoner. Here he is. Here's this faithful man. They're with Paul here. Paul's being held back. They're being grabbed by the mob and taken into, taken into the theater, if you will, that held some 25,000 people. Now, Paul wanted to go. Paul wanted to go and defend himself. He wanted to go and defend the gospel there. But again, as we see there in verses 30 and 31. Sorry, guys, flipping around here a little bit. Go back to Acts 19, 30, because this is how you have to do it. You've got to let just the Bible lay it out there for you, that you can see it. Again, Paul wanted to go. And this is interesting as we're going to see this here. Look at verses 30 and 31. Look what the Bible says. And when Paul would have entered in, in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. They, they physically held him back. said, Paul, don't go. There's 25,000 rabid George Soros supporters there that hate the gospel. Not only that, but look at verse 31. This reveals something interesting to us. And certain of the chief of Asia. That's really important, brethren. Certain of the chief of Asia are high officials within the government, if you will, the chief of Asia. And it's interesting that the guys are not, these guys are not the ones who are opposed uh, to the gospel that's being preached. Look what it says there. Some, uh, and certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. It's interesting that we have some high-ranking officials who are friends of Paul, they were not antagonized by his preaching. They were not antagonized by the gospel that he is preaching there. Not at all. But it is interesting, brethren, as we are going to move forward in our text. Who is? Who is it that ultimately and together with these human agents are opposed to what Paul is doing? Brethren, who's been opposed to Paul all along? What group of men can we think about? That every time you turn around, what group of men, when Christ was walking on the earth, God himself, what group of men opposed him at every step of the way? Finally, until Jesus says to them, amen, I am going to say nothing more to you. The Father spoke to them. The Holy Ghost spoke to them. And finally, Jesus says to these unbelieving Jews, I'm all done. I'm not going to say another word to you. This is what we see. Yes, these human agents, these men, these silver-making, shrine-building, money-making grubbers were opposed to the gospel. But even more than that, look at here, brethren. Look at verses, if you will, 33 and 34. Look at what it says. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude... The Jews putting him forth. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, uh, putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, <laughs> all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And that's right, brethren. It is the unbelieving Jews who are going to make sure that in all of this uproar and all of this tumult and all of this chaos, they want to make sure that these people know that they are with them, that they are indeed opposed to the preaching of the gospel. They are opposed to the preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are opposed to his name that is now being magnified and lifted on high, and he is, as sovereign God, only can do drawing men unto himself and saving them. The Jews, again, despised every minute of it. They were opposed to Jesus Christ. They were opposed to his message. Now they're opposed to his messengers. 
his preachers. Think of that for a moment. And it is no different here. They sent forth Alexander to, re- to relay their unholy memo unto the crowd. We are not with them. We are opposed to Paul too. We're opposed to his preaching. It's an amazing thing. And so he too though, which is interesting, by the hand of God is drowned out. <laughs> He's trying to relay this message and they're all drowning him out, screaming and screeching, great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. Think of that for a moment. Look at that. You think of the, the demonic, if you will, rhythm of that. The Kondalina, Kondalina spirit. Like we have people in the Middle East and some of these evangelicals go over there and they're nothing more than the Kondalina spirit. That's all it is. Just repeat after me. Just mantra after mantra and it'll, it'll happen. It's a stunning thing. Same, same thing here. Again, they're, they're into these evil, curious arts. It's an amazing again. But brothers, listen. Brethren, we must never miss it. We must never miss what's happening here. What's happening, brethren, is that God is setting the stage. The stage is being set again, if you will, for all the world to stand in awe of sovereign God as he brings forth his ordained means, amen, which then brings forth his ordained ends. It's the means and the ends, brethren. God is working not to raise men up, but to glorify himself, to make sure that people know that it is he, God, who protects his church. It is he who is growing his church. And this is what the stage is being set for. Paul isn't even there. Now look here, if you would, Acts chapter 19. Look at 35, 36. Again, we'll read this again all together in the text here. Because again, there's a theme here that I want you to see. The sovereign work of God. With Paul nowhere near the theater. It's a stunning thing. It really is. Look there at verses 35, verse 35. We'll read that together. And when the town clerk, he becomes the center of attention. The town clerk. The town clerk's the mayor. It's like us saying, well, we talked about the mayor this morning, right? Wouldn't it be nice if the mayor got right with the Lord? Wouldn't it be nice if the mayor would do what this mayor does? It's stunning. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Again, he's just affirming their mythological beliefs. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to quiet, he says, and do nothing rashly. I want you to consider this, brethren. This is a lost, unregenerate man who is speaking through, by God's amazingly providential hand. Paul isn't in the theater. He's nowhere there. And what does God do? Just like he did, and we're going to look at this in a moment, just like he did in chapter 18. You remember Galileo? Remember him? Again, a lost, unregenerate man. Paul, well, we're going to look at that. Let's finish our text. Look at what it says. Seeing then that these things could not be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, listen to what he tells them, which are neither robbers of churches nor what? Blasphemers of your goddess. Now, this is what they've been telling him. He's blaspheming our goddess. Here we have an unregenerate man, amen, speaking up for the gospel saying, no, that's not what they're doing. It's a stunning thing. They haven't blasphemed. They're not robbing anybody. They haven't robbed anybody. They haven't blasphemed your goddess Diana. Look what he says. For you have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open. (laughs) The law is open. Does that sound familiar? It should. And there are deputies. Let them and plead one another. You see what he's doing? He's backing out like Galileo did. I'm not going to judge this. There's the law. A lost man telling him, you let the law decide. This is sovereign God, again, watching over his church, watching over his preachers, watching over them. He's sovereignly moving here. It's amazing. As we finish that verse... But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called, he says. (laughs) See, 
Even in all of this unholy stuff, God is using this unholy thing to get this lost man's attention. He's scared. He's in danger, the Bible says. You know what he's in danger of? They're in danger of the Pax Romana. You know what Pax Romana is? Remember? We talked about that a few chapters back. The Pax Romana was what? It was the Roman peace that was, was held in high esteem over Rome. And if you interfered with that peace, you were killed immediately. This guy's going, wait a minute here. We've got this unholy assembly, this unlawful assembly. These men are accusing Paul and his preachers of blaspheming, which they are not, of stealing, which they are not. And this lost man just simply tells him, here's how it is. We are in danger, he says right there in verse 40, to be called to question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse, this riotous crowd. Look at verse 41 again. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. <laughs> now, brethren, you can't miss the pattern. We mustn't miss the pattern here. It's the same pattern in chapter 18. And again, brethren, I want us just quickly to look at this and see this together. This is the thing. God does in heaven what he does and his will be done on earth. He is sovereign. He will indeed move. He will move lost men. He used Cyrus, remember? Cyrus, the only man in the Bible, the Gentile that's ever called what God calls him. A stunning thing, but he used him for his purposes. Same thing here. This is what we see. I want you to see this. It's amazing that God, again, as I said, by his direct providence, raised up this man named Belial, who was the brother of Seneca. Remember this? Who was what? He was a tutor. Who was he a tutor to? Do you remember? Nero himself. He was a, he was a tutor to Nero. This is the brother that we see in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. He was a tutor and an advisor to Nero. Look back there quickly. Look at this pattern with me, if you would, again, just by way of reminder. Look at Acts chapter 18. And I want you to see this again. Paul's not in the theater here in Acts chapter 19, so this town clerk speaks to the crowd. Look here at verse chapter 18. Look at verse number 14. Look what we see there. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, if this matter... You see that? Paul wasn't even defending himself. Paul becomes, brother. <laughs> Not always. But again, this is a glorious thing that God is doing here. He becomes a bystander in it. It's a stunning thing. In fact, in our text this morning, Paul's not even in the theater. He is a bystander. He's not even present. And yet God uses here this Galileo. Galileo speaks. What does he say? Pay careful attention. Look what it says. So Galileo is the one who speaks for Paul, amen, to the Jews. Look at verse 15. Look at what he says. But if it be a question of words and names about your law, there it is again, same thing we got going on over in chapter 19, only it's the Roman law. Look ye to it, for I will be no judge in such matters. So what did God do? He raises up this man who is in the right place, in his providential place and time. He says, I'll speak. Paul doesn't have to speak. In fact, here, what does he do? I'm not going to judge such matters. God provided a holy and right decision through this man. It's an amazing thing, brethren. And not only that, as Paul is a bystander, watching God deliver him again, look at the last thing in verse 16 that this Galileo did. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Just exactly as our town clerk has just done in our text. He dismissed the unlawful assembly. Get out of here. You got issues. You got laws. You got these things. God, again, just moving sovereignly, delivering his people. It is a stunning thing to watch and behold. And again, just like in our text, the town clerk specifically said, Paul had not robbed or blasphemed Diana. This guy here says to the Jews, you got issues over here. And verses 38 and 39 of our text, the law is open. There are deputies. Let them deal with it. I'm not going to judge this matter. Again, a lost man that God had providentially put there to quell all of this unholy wickedness that's going on. And finally, in verses 40, let's read that together. Verses 40 and 41 again of Acts chapter 19. We see these 
continual acts of God. Brethren, it is, it is amazing. I'm just thinking of some things the Bible says about men, about angels, about lots of things. He doesn't trust them. He can't trust us, brethren. We're weak and frail. It's an amazing thing, brethren, what we will do, I'm telling you. So God here acts on his own behalf through this lost man. But look there again as we read verses 40 and 41 together. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Again, they are off. In fact, if we go into chapter 20 there, verse 1, and after the uproar was ceased, Paul called on to him the disciples, embraced them, and departed for to go to Macedonia. So again, we see God bringing through his glorious and, and, and providential means, his glorious and providential ends, which is watching over his preachers, which is taking care of them, not even in the assembly. And look what God did. The uproar is squashed. He uses this man. It, to me, brother, and I'll tell you, it, it, it's like I always say, I'm always amazed at how little people are amazed at what God does. And here it is no different. There is no difference here in our text as we see this together. So let me just bring this to a close, as the Puritans always did, with a practical point. I've said it already several times. Our holy narrative in our text, brethren, declares to us once again that God is the one. He is the center of everything. Amen? He is the one who oversees all of human affairs. Brethren, we get accused. Well, God, God created evil. God participates in evil. I don't know about you, brethren, but I don't want random evil just wandering around. I don't want random evil coming into my life without God's purpose. Do you, under, do you see that? God is sovereign over all things. When evil comes, there is a purpose that God has designed for it. I don't want like these are, oh, God didn't do this. God, as Spurgeon said, he watches and directs every, listen, grain of sawdust on the floor of the, of the mill. Everything. It's amazing, brethren, as we see this. God does indeed oversee all of human affairs. And he is the protector of his church. We see here how God acts to accomplish his perfect will on earth as it is in heaven. This, brethren, should be music to our ears. Music to the believer's ears. Why should it be music, in fact, a sweet melody to our ears? As he uses us, as he used Paul, as he used faithful people, brethren, to propagate the gospel. Amen? This place, this time, we have sovereignly been placed here by God. And it's amazing. He uses us. Sometimes he gets us out of the way like he does here. But he uses us as ministers, as preachers of the gospel, of that which Paul is preaching, that which never changes, that which alone, no amount of tricks, no amount of stage antics, none of it will help anyone. There's only one thing that helps a lost person, number one, and edifies the saints, number two. And that is as Paul's, we're going to see here soon, as he's ready, to, as he leaves Ephesus. Remember what he said. He says, I leave. I've, I've been here three years. I've, through many tears, I've taught the whole counsel of God. And in the end of all of that, he says this, as we're going to see. He says, brethren, I commend you to God and to his what? Word. And brethren, that's what we must do. We must commend ourselves, we must commend the brethren to God and to his word. 
This is what he always uses. This is what he will always use, is a faithful man. Or particularly, if you're working or in your home, a faithful woman in their home, preaching to their children, preaching to their friends, preaching to whoever God opens the door. That is indeed the power of God unto salvation. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Amen? Isn't that what Tertius wrote through the inspiration of Paul in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17? Amen? It's an amazing thing. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together this morning as we prepare our hearts to gather around the Lord's table. Father, we again are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for that you would be so gracious unto us that we would have it so readily. We think of not too distant past. We think of when you raised up Calvin and Luther and Zingli and all these men. I mean, Jonathan Edwards more recently and Charles Spurgeon. You, just, you think of these great men who you used. And one of the things they all had in common was a high view of the Word of God. Always. Always. When you have a high view of the Word of God, you will indeed have a high view of God. And you will indeed have a proper view of men. And I'm using that as a general term for all of us. It's an amazing thing for me that we, we go to Scripture and we see the Lord Jesus telling a man who is alive. He says, I'm, I'm going to follow you, but I need to go bury my father. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, just, you let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> well, there was one there or more who was dead physically, but those who were burying him were dead spiritually. The Bible says men are dead. They're born dead spiritually. Paul said that. In Ephesians chapter 2, <laughs> we are dead in our sins and trespasses. In fact, if, if we go all the way back to Genesis, when one of the times that Satan speaks in the first person, he tricks Eve concerning the word of God. And Eve said, God said, if we're going to die if we eat of the fruit of the tree. We will die. We're not just sick. We're not, not feeling well. We're not just, you know, down in our beds. The Bible says that men die. Stunningly, isn't it? Paul said it. <laughs> Eve said it to the serpent, and it, it's, it's amazing to see that whole thing. Men are dead in their sins and trespasses. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Eve said it. Adam said it. God said it. And yet in today's, I'm just going to call it what it is, unholy evangelism, unholy churches. Men are not dead. They're just sick. They, they have within themselves the ability to accept Christ all on their own. In fact, it's gone so far now that you have men saying that the Holy Spirit has absolutely nothing to do with it, which is a stunning that's where it goes. That, that's Leighton Flowers is where it ends up. That's exactly, that's just full-blown hyper-Pelagianism, if you will. Amazing to watch it. We can see what the Bible says, and yet men in their own wisdom are trying to excuse God, trying to get around what he actually says. And that does indeed take away from the miraculous working of God, because only he... Men are not able. Men are not able. Until the Father draws them, the Spirit of God regenerates them, that they might indeed look up. As A.W. Pink said, that they might indeed look up to see the Son in John chapter 3. We see the Spirit at work. We see the, the Son at work in John chapter 3 that they might see. And then 
to worship the Father in spirit and truth, chapter 4. There's the only way is to be born again from above. And it's the Spirit, the Father, and the Son as they work through salvation in one's heart. So, Father, we thank you for that. Thank you this morning that we could gather together. And thank you now as we gather around the Lord's table, as we are proclaiming to the world, saying to all of the world that we believe every jot and tittle concerning your Son, concerning holy scriptures, concerning your glorious working out of things. Concerning, and we're saying, yes, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he rose again according to the scriptures, which is what Paul said is the gospel, and one can only believe, again, as we have laid it out. The Father draws, the Spirit regenerates, that they might look up and see the Son as their perfect sacrifice and trust, as Paul used in Ephesians, trust in him. And when one does that again, all gifts of God, all by grace alone, one does that again, we are imputed by God, the gift of imputation, the gift of Christ, his righteousness, his holiness is added to our account. We are justified instantly and made right as Jesus appeased the wrath of the Father for us. Father, we thank you now and pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.